Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're talking grunge. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, in the tragic wake of Chris Cornell's death, let's talk about grunge. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here today with Christian Lewis and Jeremy Sartori, my two brothers. And we are in the uh, tragic wake of uh, the death of Chris Cornell. Um, We are saying a little prayer for Eddie Vedder uh, and talking about grunge. So, um, you know, I I wanted to, I guess, just jump right in and and sort of... uh, Talk about the origins of grunge. This was all sort of culminating around the time you were born, Christian. Jerry, you were in what, eighth or ninth grade? Uh, yeah, I mean, the the original kind of early, late 80s grunge, I was probably even younger than that. But then the sort of explosion of grunge uh, was my early early high school years. High school. Yeah, and this really sort of is the, the block. This was, you know, start to finish my college career, um, starting with 19, in 1988 and ending in 93. Um, I was at a uh, one of the rare five-year schools in this country, um, but uh, you know, basically, you know, you sort of saw, you know, it was the music I listened to in college. Um, you know, Mud Honey, um, you know, the non-Seattle bands I was listening to uh, were local. You know, Dinosaur, the Pixies, um, Sonic Youth, uh, all sort of had. Uh, ties to the uh, area where I was in school in Amherst, Massachusetts. Um, so Seattle seemed very far away, and I think part of the the sort of uh, rise of grunge, part of the the sort of whole um, you know way this music came together, the the, the sort of distinctiveness of Seattle uh, really comes from you know is, is a, in large part due to the geography. It really was kind of a, a you know, despite the fact that it's continental U.S., it's sort of its own island up there in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, a lot of bands uh, who were on tour had to decide, you know, when they were coming up the coast, L.A., San Francisco are obvious, Portland is a reach, and then Seattle is like, eh, maybe, maybe not. So I think the isolation of Seattle sort of... Uh, it created sort of a, a communal... Yeah, it, it, communal scene as well and, and, and kind of a mix of, of, of music styles, I think. We didn't have kind of the cool, this is pre-Microsoft, pre-Seattle you know Seattle being what it is today, so you, you had kind of a, a group of, of people that were, you know, to your point, when kind of islands unto themselves and, and really kind of all started with like the Melvins <clears throat> and Green River. And these yeah. guys had a, a mix of styles. So where you had kind of like the sonic use and the and aforementioned dinosaur juniors and, and of that group, you had a, a bunch of like kind of long-haired misfit kids who, you know, I, I've read some things about early Melvin shows where they would do, you know, speed metal and then cheap trick covers. And, uh, yeah. you know, it was, it's, it's just a, a weird blend and, and kind of where... I mean, I, 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 when I look back at grunge, I kind of think of it as the first time sort of heavy metal and, and kind of what we call like indie rock or alternative rock today kind of merged. 
Yeah, um, that was the thing. Is it was it had its own. You know, I think by virtue of its its isolation, it it didn't have the same um, sort of cultural pressures that you did in you know very cool New York, very. Um, you know, sort of uh, L.A., L.A., or, you know, very righteous San Francisco. It sort of was a bunch of guys that liked Sonic Youth and Cheap Trick and, um, you know, Halen and the uh, Pixies and grew up on Sabbath and the Doobie Brothers. You know, so it was sort of, there was nothing, there was no sort of cool cool police that were really, you know, uh, patrolling the scene telling you that you couldn't like these two things that in New York would have been completely disparate uh, factions. So I think that's what's really, you know, is that sort of um, alchemy of, of sound that, you know, it was, it has a lot of the markings of, you know, Sabbath and, and Zeppelin, but it also married them with, you know, with, you know, sort of uh, poppier and more yeah, traditional pop melodies. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it was the first time that you sort of had, you know, um, you had sort of traditional pop structures and songs that were sort of thrown into overdrive um, and fed through a big muff, you know, mm-hmm. um, so. And then the very, yeah, I know. You know <laughs> I the, just, I, I had, I needed, I was just trying to plant that in there somewhere. Yeah. And I mean, so the, these original bands, Tad, the Melvins, Green River, Mother Love Bone. Um, you know they mud honey they, yeah mud honey they, well yeah well, and it, actually it was really Green River and and the Melvins and then it really is the earlier it really does become a family tree where one of them leaves this band and two of them leave that band and uh, and you know and then yes. they sort of regroup and start another band which is mud honey and another band which is mother, mother love Bone. but it's, what, it's what, what essentially sorry when I don't mean to cut you off but just an interesting story there is, is it was Mark Arm and Turner who were in in Green River Green River sorry with Amit and um, Stone Gossard, and the reason they split was, you know, they, you know, that, that album had some success. Was put out by by Sub Pop. They obviously were sort of the the kind of creme de la creme of the sound, very influenced by the Melvins. But two of the guys, Stone Gossard and Jeff Amit, wanted to be sort of rock stars, and uh, you know, Mark Arm and Turner wanted to stay kind of independent and do their own thing, and so yeah, wanted hence, to make loud, noisy, yeah, fast hence music, like Mud Honey, and, and then Mother Love Bone. And then Matt Lucan came over from the Melvins and joined yep. Mud, those guys in Mud Honey. Um, then you know Mother Love Bone was was sort of poised as the story goes. I mean I, I don't buy it because I didn't really love Mother Love Bone, but um, you know they were a really solid band that I thought had a, a you know everyone's in retrospect says they had this great frontman. I, I always thought he was a little bit lacking, but uh, and his name is Andrew Wood. He dies of an overdose, and the community comes even further together. Um, uh, the guys that were the leftover from Mother Love Bone import this guy from San Diego named Eddie Vedder, and, uh, you know, Pearl Jam is born. Um, but Great. Is everybody paying attention, by the way? Because this <laughs> is, like, the most complicated genealogy. Like, it really is. I mean, this is worse than our family. But, um, yeah. you know, it, it, so, I mean, all of that is to say that this, you know, this was a, I mean, this is a long way around saying this is a really, really incestuous scene. scene. Yeah, I yeah. mean... It is one of you know, the most a handful. Of, yeah, and, it really. Yeah. Every you know, one of these guys from all of these bands was in at least one of these other bands. You know what I mean? They're just sort of like, uh, you know, this is this is sort of like uh, and, um, Santa Monica in the seventies. It was like, was, yeah, I know they're are, married, but now they're think, together. It's like, I think are, it, there, are there any particular factors that you guys could 
can identify that contribute, like, because there are other ancestral scenes, right? I mean, like, think about New York in the early 2000s, um, or, uh, I mean, hell, Lower East Side, like, in the late 60s, early 70s, like, but but even though those were, clo- I mean, relatively closed circuit scenes, um, I guess the bands didn't seem to, like, break and reorganize as frequently as they did in the early grunge era, and I'm just wondering if that's if there's anything that like contributed to that, that you know, like why were these bands like right, you know, cr- being created and then and then disappearing in the course of a year, eighteen months? I think the one of the main reasons, and and this is speculation on my part. I've never heard anyone say this necessarily, but um, you know, there's a much more organic scene in Seattle. I mean, in New York, you've got people coming from all parts of the world and sort of meeting in this epicenter of culture. In Seattle, if you do the genealogy on this thing, I mean. The, the four guys that started the Melvins were in the same high school. Um, yep. You know, they were a band playing Kiss covers and then, you know, did their own thing. And then, you know, I mean, so you think about starting a band in high school, you know, there's going to be some, uh, you know, everybody, everybody from that region um, is going to move to Seattle if they're from suburban Seattle or if they're from a little further out in the, you know, in the sort of sticks, there's no other choice than to go to Seattle. So the, all of the guys that are playing music, all the people that are playing music out there are going to wind up in the same, you know, sort of, uh, similar to Minneapolis, Chicago at times. And, and I think one thing too, that that's kind of interesting with this whole scene is, uh, you know, you have you have definitely a sound and look. So just to, I, I can't I can't help to go back to the look. But this was a time in the late '80s, mind you, when you know hair metal reigned. Um, if you were sort of alternative or or, or kind of punk or cool, um, you know, you tended to have sort of short hair and and you know. Uh, Stylies or leather jackets. Yeah, you had a look, and everybody had a look then. It was sort of, you knew what type of music people were in by their look. And this scene kind of blew that up. I mean, you had, you know, Soundgarden and, uh, you know, Mother Love Bone that looked kind of, well, Mother Love Bone looked like they wanted to be a hair metal band almost, if you go back and look at press pictures of those guys. Uh, Mud Honey sort of had that indie rock look, but, you know, from the from the woods, the wilderness. And, uh, and then you had... Um, People like Soundgarden who looked like, you know, kind of skated the line between thrash metal and, and, and you know, sort of uh, pure hard rock. Um, yeah, they could have been in Metallica or Dino. Who was that? Yeah. Who was that? The last one? Uh, Soundgarden. Oh, who yeah. Was one of well, the- those guys were, uh, it's funny, those guys were a little bit like, maybe not Chris Cornell, but wasn't the, wasn't the, their, their bassist was like, hate, hates the term and sort of didn't qu- and like they always sort of seemed to me like they didn't quite fully identify with the with the scene maybe the same way that other people did maybe that was just something that sort of well, emerged were, later as they were trying to sort of carve think, out their own path I think the but, thing with Soundgarden was was that they were the biggest band in Seattle and everybody knew yeah. that they were graduating onward I mean there was no way uh, with a voice like that you know that Chris Cornell and a look like that that Chris Cornell wasn't going to be a rock star so, but you know. I, I guess my, my yeah, I, I, I'm thinking more like after Cobain died, um, I, I think that these guys sort of recognize that like, okay, grunge is sort of that that is forever and always going to be the, the heartbeat of, um, you know, of, of that sort of movement or that that time or subculture or whatever. Um, and for that reason, you know, they sort of maybe try to distance themselves a little bit. That was kind of my. Yeah, I think, I, mean, I think a lot of these bands in fashion, did, they did. You know, post well, I think that. this is that. I think that's a reason why it's kind of important to walk through it chronologically because what it was, I think, was there was this 
you know, there was the Seattle scene, but it wasn't nobody. You know, nobody was sniffing around it looking for nobody the next gave big a shit. Thing. <laughs> Soundgarden was the thing that people came to see, and then discovered all the you know these other bands, Pearl Jam and, and Nirvana. Yeah, and yeah, pre I mean, pre some, that sort of sniffing around, it was a very communal scene. I mean, when when Andrew Wood died, you know, that's I mean Eddie Vedder's first recording on an album was the the uh, Temple of the Dog with Soundgarden, which was a tribute to. Andrew Wood, which was a mixed group of, you know, guys from Soundgarden and, and right. what became Pearl Jam, Mother Love Bone. So, I mean, it was, a bunch you know, of songs that Chris weirdly supportive. I mean, if you go back and look at press photos, it, it's it's kind of cool and it, it's just weird. I mean, they all are wearing each other's T-shirts. They're all, you know, sort of, yeah. um, you know, and I, I think, too, another unifying force, Christian, that you brought, you brought up kind of what unified it so much and when talked about definitely the geography is Sub Pop Records. So, I mean, um, yeah. if you guys don't mind, I'm going to do a little spiel on Sub Pop because it's so, so important yeah, to this, this scene. Um, you know, Sub Pop was, was the mastermind of, of Bruce Pavitt and Jonathan uh, Poneman in, in 1986 kind of formed. And, and it was based off of like a, uh, a fanzine, subterranean pop, that uh, Pavitt had put together. And they decided, you know, let's, let's turn this into a, a record label. So in 86 they put out the Sub Pop 100, which has become kind of like a collector's item. It was their first vinyl release. Anybody who has it in their collection is, is kind of like a music god. And, and it didn't have a lot of these bands. It didn't have any of these bands, actually. It had more like Sonic Youth, Scratch Acid, um, you know, uh, the Wipers, sort of just avant-garde bands of the time. But I think what we were talking about earlier where a lot of these bands were sort of metalheads or classic rock heads, it turned on a lot of these groups to to that bigger sound. Them and the Melvins. The Melvins always, you know, all of these bands kind of name check the Melvins as, as a huge influence. Um, but then, you know, these guys really determined early on that like record labels at the time were really regional. So you had Matador in New York. Uh, you had originally SST and and kind of LA and 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 uh, doing kind of the the, the punk rock mm-hmm. Black Flag thing. West Coast. And they even studied Slash. things like yeah, they studied like Motown and, and saw like okay, there's a Detroit sound, and, and they really were conscious about creating a Seattle sound. And, Discord. Yeah, Discord. And and the cool thing was was what they did was they you know started to do limited press releases. So um, Touch Me I'm Sick, which was uh, as Green River actually was their first release as, as a band, the first EP from Green River. They blew up, and then um, Touch Me, I'm Sick, the single, was was their first big release. And they purposely would do things like, you know, put out only 500 copies and, and build buzz around it. And then also in, in fanzines and in sort of music mags, they... Um, they they promoted the label, so they, their advertisement was <laughs> yeah. more. I mean, I had an old Afghan wigs was signed to the to Sub Pop early on, and I had an old Afghan wigs T shirt, one of their you know early T shirts, and on the back was just a giant Sub Pop logo, and you know they did that all the time. You know they really put the label first. Well, it's it's funny. It's one of the. I mean, I, I can just say from personal experience, it's it's when I was. 15, 14, 15, 16, sort of like at that point where I was becoming aware of different labels and the like the fact that those brands, you know, have some bearing on the actual music that's the cool sort of factor, released yeah. therein. Yeah. Like that was that was the first one I'd heard. You know, the first like true indie that I became familiar with. It was like that and Saddle Creek, you know? And like those are it, it makes sense. They've done an incredible job. Uh, curating or sort Marketing. of um, cult- cultivating yeah. their image, I guess. Yeah. Well, w- one of the famous stories. I mean, and I uh, hate to pull it away from from Jer's uh, Sub Pop. No, but one of the do, famous yeah. stories about Sub Pop was that you know the obviously Bleach came out on Sub Pop and um, they spent you know six hundred you know I forget what the exact sum was six hundred and six dollars recording Bleach. <laughs> they spent more 
buying a plane ticket for a reporter from the uh, NME from NME to come over and cover it um, to cover the scene to sort of brand it overseas as like this amazing thing that you were missing out on. It really was. I mean, it was well. So it's interesting. I mean, they they at this point you've had. Really, it's been about ten years since uh, ten years since indie labels first sort of started to pop up all over the country, and it's as though, you know, these were maybe the first guys. I, I'm sort of, you know, like prove me wrong, but I mean, Less you know, these, these are sort of the first guys who really had, had had they'd had ten years to sort of observe and figure out, okay, how do we as an indie label play the press? Like, how do we? How do we really generate buzz? You know, you, I mean, the things you were talking about, like re- releasing um, limited, uh, limited release, you know, singles and records, like really catering to the media and stuff like that. It was sort of as though, I mean, they were just they were really smart and strategic about it. Yeah, I would say half. I would say half that number. I would say it was about five years since you know, uh, regional labels really, you know, that had any that had any cachet. I mean, I was thinking um, of SST and Discord though, which were like nineteen eighty. Yeah. So yeah, this is eighty six. So. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, I was thinking. Sorry, yeah, but okay, exactly. But of, of grunge, I was thinking, yeah, like they were really good at it by like 1990 mm-hmm. when they were sort of dominating. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay, they were, they were well, going out that of business. The British press thing that they knew when was was the idea was that they knew that the Brits were desperate for like unruly American rock, and that was right. kind of their thought process. If we can come and show them these like raw, Badass. you know, just insanely loud bands, they will come. Yeah. But I mean, you know, and they also coined, I mean, in a weird way, coined the term grunge. Green River is just history, say, considered the first kind of grunge grunge album, even though these guys would all quote sort of the Melvins as the influence. But in the advertisement for that album, it was ultra-loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation. You know, that was the tagline for the Green River I'm, album. I'm, I'll buy that. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, but that, that is a funny thing. Is that, you know, I mean, obviously, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll take a break after this, but obviously there is a really uh, sort of tenuous relationship with the term among its... Uh, you know, un- among its central figures. So uh, let's take a quick break, uh, listen to a little bit of uh, Green River and come back and talk about how, uh, how people who were a part of grunge really hate the term grunge.
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. We're, today we're talking about grunge. And um, I think one of the, you know, we left off talking about, um, you know, really how, how, uh, how much the label of grunge itself was, uh, you know, sort of uh, disputed and uh, reviled by the people who were lumped into this particular category. It wasn't originally. It was a, a fairly... Um, innocuous term that was used again, like Jeremy said, to uh, um, put a fine point on what Green River sounded like. But uh, it is uh, it then uh, as it, ex- it was extrapolated out, and um, you know, basically ninety one, ninety two, um, much the same as as the flashpoint we discussed when we talked about disco. Um, all of a sudden, it was such a massive. Uh, explosion and, and such an unexpected one that, you know, the fact that everybody started, you know, sort of trying to dip their toe in to this grunge thing and, and sort of capitalize on it. Again, you know, companies saying that this is what the kids are digging now. Um, down to the point where, uh, you know, in 92, there was an article in the New York Times, which is now fairly infamous, um, called, you know, I think it's called Grunge, a Success Story. Um and it sort of chronicles how this music from Seattle infiltrated uh, the fashion world and, you know, retailers and marketing executives and everybody were going nuts trying to, you know, figure out how, how to uh, incorporate grunge, the new, new, new thing into their, uh, you know, into their clothing lines and everything. I mean, if, if sort of famously Mark Jacobs, who a um, bit of a fashion cipher, um, had his runway show that year, and all these models um, showed up very skinny and pale and wearing flannels and combat boots with the tongues hanging out and knit caps. And yeah, there's a pretty funny line in the New York Times article itself saying that, um, that one of the retailers says, well, usually you hit the runway and it takes three years to trickle down to Kmart. Uh, somehow the stuff's already there. <laughs> it was bought yeah. by a Kmart. You know, it's basically like you know trying to make uh, sexy out of LL Bean and Lands End and and you know Woolrich, um, so, which is pretty amusing. I mean, the whole thing Jer- became Jerry's absurd. Still out on that. Well, yeah, I mean, rewinding a little bit when I mean that explosion happened due to you know. Obviously, Soundgarden the being the band. first band to be signed by a major label, and then and Nirvana the ex- blowing everything up completely. Right. So they, yeah. the expectation they were was SST really around. first. No, no, um, Soundgarden. Yeah, Soundgarden oh, was on they? Sub Pop. They were on Sub Pop, I thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, Screaming okay. Life and and uh, Louder Than No, they, they were signed to SST for uh, for Ultra Mega OK, and then they hmm. which um, yeah, likely they, SST then went through some legal issues. But their right. first and, uh, screaming life, and then and they got picked up by Universal, the the, the imprint A and M, um, and that that was really where they started to get the the you know the major attention. It was the first band to break out of the orbit of, of Seattle. Yeah, but it was, bad uh, bad Motorfinger was the major label debut by those guys. The first, yeah. the EP yeah, and, and Louder Than Love were were sub pop records. Good records too. Um, that was the thing is that like everybody was expecting Soundgarden to to. I mean, there was there was not uh, it was not unexpected that Soundgarden they had a lot was going to huge. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I remember buying Louder Than Love, and, and it was kind of like this is the hottest band in the underground right now. And, and you know they were and they sounded different than everybody. They were big and fast, and his voice was you know people didn't sing 
that I mean, you had on the in the East Coast, you had sort of like Galaxy Five Hundred, you know. Yeah, you had um, the indie guy voice. Indie guy, yeah, exactly. And and out there, the, this was like a guy you know who was channeling Robert Plant with sort of speed metal behind him. Yeah, I mean, Soundgarden was opening for Guns N' Roses, and uh, you know, Guns N' Roses. I mean, I remember reading an article where Axl Rose, and again, this is where you had limited exposure to these things, so you you know read magazines to try and catch up with what was going on, and. Axel Rose said Chris Cornell, or oh, I think he didn't say Chris Cornell. I think he said the guy from Soundgarden has the greatest rock and roll voice I've ever heard, um, which is something. You know, I mean, Axel Rose paying anybody else a compliment is pretty amazing. Um, but what you know, so they're expecting Soundgarden to go through the you know stratospheric, and all of a sudden, Nevermind comes out, and it just <laughs> boom. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really. It's a you know we've. I think we've covered this ground, you know, more than once in our podcast, but it, it's hard to explain um, how much everything changed. It's almost like, you know, Wizard of Oz-ish when they go from black and white to color. It was like, you know, holy shit. All of the, I mean, hair metal died on the vine that day. It was, yeah. uh, it was really, it, be, it was a complete sea change in the industry. And what people were listening to, um, the way radio was programmed, the way records were distributed, it, it had a you know seismic effect on everything. But it is also crazy though that Bad Motor Finger Ten and Nevermind came out in the same year. Yep. I mean that's that's a that's a I mean it's you a huge know scene, Seattle scenes, rock year. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I think Seriously, within that calendar like year was in awesome any context. Yeah. yeah, I mean the the fact that uh, which Alice in Chains album was. Facelift, I believe, was the first one that came out. That was okay. the one with Man yeah, in the Box. Yeah, I mean, but it's like yeah. that's not a um, or dirt. I think dirt Face. was later. Let me just dirt I'll, was I'll okay. Check it, keep the facelift. Oh yeah, here it is. Facelift was nineteen ninety, and dirt was nineteen ninety two. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean that's um, that's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but like it, you know, I was thinking like when we talk about like Interpol strokes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, that's just the, the that's top of mind right now is this sort of early two um, thousands rock scene just because there's a there's a new book out about it, a uh, new oral history um, by Lizzie Goodman. But the like, I, I'm just I mean, did all of those out, like did all of those bands put out an album in the same year? Because I mean, that's just an incredibly powerful mm-hmm. um, statement and, for one place to make, particularly thought, one that wasn't on the map three I years had, ago. I have you to know? say, like you know, I mean, I was a junior in college, I think, or a sophomore in college, and it felt like they all came out the same week. I, I, I don't imagine they did, but it felt like all of a sudden it was. It went from not being there to being there. It was all of a sudden the stuff I like. And Jared has mentioned this before. All of a sudden, the stuff I, you know, the stuff I like is weird and underground. And then the next Mainstream. week, it's everybody is listening to it. It was a very strange, um, you know, well, it very just strange to- shift. Put it in context, too, just on, on sort of the touring scale. So, I mean, at the time, this was pre-Lollapalooza being a stationary festival. It was very sort of actually revolutionary when it first came out, when Perry Farrell first did the first Lollapalooza. The year, Which was the same think, year. Yeah, so you, Wyndham and I went 91. To, to year 91. And you, went, you and I went to year two, though, I think, when... Yep. and uh, you and I did, yep. I mean, this is Pearl Jam, who now, you know, within a, a few months became one of the biggest rock bands. You know, it was on the cover of Time magazine, a la U2. Um, they were the second band on the bill. You know, we got there early to see see them. I mean, they were, and Soundgarden played actually after. Yeah. Soundgarden was closer to the closer, and Soundgarden was they sort were of all big, daytime big bands. Yeah. yeah, and uh, it, it was wild. You know, and they both were great. But it, it's uh, it's just funny. I mean, I remember a tour pre ten coming out that I did not get a chance to go to, but I had friends who went that was 
Pearl Jam opening, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, the second band, and Red Hot Chili Peppers headlining. And they were yeah, playing, I saw that like, at Springfield. The, they were Civic playing Center. the Academy <laughs> or something in yeah, New York. I saw know? them at Springfield Civic Center, and and you know, not to mention the fact that you know I was sitting in my in class, and you know, it, just a, again a matter of function of timing. But I was sitting in class one day, and I heard. And I knew Pearl Jam was coming. I was going to see him. But, uh, you know, I heard them playing, or I heard them doing sound check and walked over to the student union where they were playing and just walked right into their sound check. You know, it was like, um, it was, you know, like nobody knew who they were yet. It was pretty wild. And then, you know, it was, again, it was a meteoric thing. Like, uh, I don't know, you know, you, no one will ever know if, if you know, Nirvana, if Nevermind hadn't, you know, topped the charts, um, you know, so suddenly, abruptly, and, and without any expectation. I mean, the first pressing of Nevermind was 50,000 albums, and that seemed like an over, you know, an overestimate um, of its potential. Um, went on to sell, you know, what, 20 million or something. But, um, you know, who knows? You know, if it's a rising tide lifts all ships. Um, I don't know if Pearl Jam would have been uh, massive in, uh, in a vacuum, but, you know, they both got massive at the same time, really. Yeah, and I think it, it was kind of the story. We've talked about this in, in ongoing conversations about the the sort of reluctant rock stars that all these guys were, you know. And I think the one band that actually probably would have embraced rock stardom a little more at the time was was maybe Chris Cornell's Soundgarden because they'd been really kind of the working man's band and, and sort of lauded as, as the next big thing. But um, I think well, I think Kurt that was Cobain part, I, and Eddie I think that Vedder, was part of it was, was that. Uh, you know, like Chris Cornell and Eddie Vedder, particularly uh, less so Kurt Cobain. I mean, actually, all three of them. It's like they were all incredibly charismatic, handsome, talented people. So um, they didn't really have a choice in the matter. If they were going to be singers, they were going to be rock stars. And you know, it sort of it was thrust on them. They did, I don't think, know any of them were really courting it so much. But it was inevitable. Well, two of them buckled. So I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, I mean, they've you know, and, and all of them ultimately faced like real hardship in those roles. I mean, Eddie Vedder may have. I mean, I, you know, at this point, it, this is a question for like twenty twenty hindsight. But I mean, he seems to have sort of grown into it and grown the most comfortable with it. I mean, I, I you know, I shouldn't say buckled, but at the end of the day, I mean, it was like clearly Cornell struggled with it for decades. Um, and, you know, constantly faced uh, a sort of uphill battle with, with depression, and Cobain obviously did and, and, you know, had a much more abbreviated life for it. Um, I, I don't... I, yeah, I mean, they were sort of unassuming guys, but, but, they, but they had all of the pieces. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's related to the rock star conversation that we've been having. Well, you, I mean, if, they have... Yeah. If you look at the trajectory of Pearl Jam and Eddie Vedder, you know, they really started withdrawing from it almost immediately. They stopped yeah. making videos after their first album. They stopped, you know, they, they picked a, a fight with... Uh, Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster, which could have been, uh, you know, catastrophic for them as a, you know, in terms of their business. I mean, they really, um, you know, and they stopped promoting their albums really on rock radio. They stopped, you know, it was a, it's a very... They, yeah, they I mean, had, they... they they went a little. I mean, they started to experiment back. more. Yeah, they definitely pulled back, and I think it was definitely, um, you know, a lot of it probably I'm sure had to do with you know just the the Cobain thing, and then also they were. I mean, they were reluctant. I think they were reluctant rock stars. I mean, I think they were big enough, and that's a band that's really carved out a, a niche kind of great career for themselves. And I think you're right, Christian. I think as Eddie Vedder has gotten older, he seems to enjoy himself more and, and go out. But early on, he was very aloof in interviews and, and kind of. Uh, 
you know, not really a, a, a sort of front man's front man. I mean, even though he has the voice, the look, and, and uh, you know, I, I mean, I think they were, they kind of blew Seattle out of the water. Seattle becomes the the hottest spot, you know, on earth for rock and roll. So should we talk a little bit about the uh, the downside, downward spiral post-grunge? Yeah, it was, well, I, first I, I just wanted to tip my hat to, uh, to the woman who was, uh, I believe, a... Uh, um, one of a retail manager, I can't remember whether it was at Sub Pop or Carolina or someplace, uh, who was uh, who just happened to pick up the phone when the New York Times reporter called and um, offered them a sidebar, offered them a, a sort of lexicon of grunge of like you know hip local speak which didn't exist. So basically, she's telling them that you know this is the new vernacular that is uh, surrounding <laughs> grunge, and they do a, an entire sidebar on this thing. It's like, awesome. you know, um, what was it, like uh, hanging on the flippity-flop? Or no, it was like, uh, you know, jocking to the flippity-flop or whatever, and it was like, you know, that means hanging out. And it was like, kickers are boots, and, you know, um, lame stains means, you know, an, an unpopular person. And all the while, this girl's just making shit up off the top of her head, and it goes... Uh, <laughs> The equivalent so of this is like the yeah. There's like a, an entire uh, like lexicon or or um, you know that she just completely made up like yeah. on the spot. Nice. And it really reminds awesome. me of you know what John Waters was was poking fun at in the early '70s when he would you know do like Pink Flamingos or or those early you know movies that he did where you know he would have this sort of fake. Um, you know, art crowd that would come down and fetishize, uh, you know, his, his the, these people in a trailer park, and they'd be like, "Aren't they vulgar? Isn't this amazing?" <laughs> and like take pictures, and that kind of was what it felt like um, with the New York Times and and the coverage and the fashion world aping uh, grunge and and the New York Times paying attention to it. It felt like all these people going in and trying to sort of contextualize and intellectualize something that was a fairly, you know. Was not seeking that version of the spotlight. It was no, it was, and you can't forget singles. The movie as well, which is celebrating a uh, anniversary, which is yeah, basically just a bad romantic comedy set in Seattle with a fantastic soundtrack of the time. But again, you know, it was it, the production on that began before any of these bands broke. It, yep. you know, Cameron Crowe just happened to have relocated to Seattle and said, you know, this is a pretty cool town with a pretty. Uh, sort of original scene. I'm going to make a movie set in this place, and uh, he wound up, you know, because he had done say anything, which is also in Seattle. Um, you know, he does singles, and it, and it it looks intentional, like the like the movie studios are chasing this trend. But in fact, Cameron Crowe had been making this relatively minor movie. Um, you know that that wound up becoming a, a you know juggernaut, and particularly its soundtrack. Uh, really, I mean, I think it, that that soundtrack sold, you know, millions and millions of copies, and and really popularized that music doubly um, because it became like a great mixtape of of the bands that were at its epicenter. You know, Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and uh, the Screaming Trees, um, Pearl Jam you know, and others. Pearl Jam. So sorry. Um, do you want to take a quick break and come back and and go yeah. through the uh, and and talk demise? Sounds good. All right. Cool. Breathe, 
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking, actually we're just about to wrap up our, our discussion of grunge. And you can't really talk about grunge without talking about the, the sort of uh, trail of misery that uh, was left in its wake. I mean, you know, uh, obviously Kurt Cobain, um, you know, very uh, famously killed himself in 1994 um, when, you know, the band was, um, you know, the biggest band, rock and roll band in the world. Uh, Lane Staley... Uh, lead singer of Alice in Chains, uh, a couple years later, um, yeah, died, you know, a, a very um, sad death um, after just holing up in a, in a penthouse of a hotel in Seattle and, and doing nothing but heroin for several months. And um, even Scott Weiland, who's a sort of fringe character, I mean, people uh, are reluctant to, you know, make him part of the scene, but, you know, his band was probably the most popular imitator of, of the original scene, the Stone Temple Pilots. I mean, he had a, a long tra- trail of, um, you know, drug addiction and, and issues and ultimately died on tour a couple of uh, years ago, and, and now we have Chris Cornell uh, and what apparently looks like a suicide uh, on tour at 52 years old. Um this was a scene that didn't leave a lot of people happy. Um, I mean, the, the the music itself was dark. The the um, you know Seattle is famously rainy and gloomy. But um, you know what was it about this scene that that you know left so many people um, uh, you know in its wake, either um, with crippling addictions or dead? I think it was a, a mix of things. I mean, I think you had kind of the the misfit culture that it came from so a lot of these guys were true outcasts right they weren't the the hair metal guys or the football players or whatever of that time kind of the clicky type things and and they were you know grew grew up and music was their way out and so they had they and then all of a sudden they were the most famous people in the world and I think uh you know Kurt Cobain famously kind of talked about singing to the people that used to beat him up you know and and uh and in addition to that you know seattle's uh, we've talked about seattle being a port town and and having easy access to things like heroin and plus it fucking rains every day <laughs> so what else are you gonna do <laughs> but, i think um, you touched on a couple a couple of good points there though i mean like one is um you know the fact that it was truly like a meteor i mean it was like overnight success for a lot of these guys and they weren't planning on it. It, it, Well, they they weren't making the kind of music that anybody thought was going to be an overnight success. So when it happened, I think it kind of shocked them. They were personally unprepared. It's not like they were, it's not like they were, you know, the early Kings of Leon and like setting out to be a huge fucking mainstream rock band. They were like doing their own weird thing in their own weird corner in their own weird way. And all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're, they're a household name all over the world. So, I mean, there's that. And then, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, as you said, like the the other aspect is like when you think about the lyrics. I mean, it's the, these guys are th- these guys are this yeah the social outcast. There's a lot of anxiety and and you know this sort of teen collective like teen early twenties angst that these guys were were really living through their music. But it wasn't it wasn't contrived. It was real. Yeah, I mean that's a fun. That's the thing is is this wasn't a character. Uh, sketch. This was, you know, this was a bunch of bands making music about being miserable. So, um, you know, it shouldn't be shocking that it, it ended sadly. That they, that they were miserable. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but it, it is, I mean, it, 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 but, you know, uh, with, without irony, it is a very sad thing. It was a terrible thing that, um, you know, that happened. Uh, you know, it was a really crushing to a lot of people. I, I mean, Jeremy, uh, Simon O'Connor, yeah. we talked about this, about, you know, being of a certain age, idolizing Kurt Cobain and having him, you know, uh, so publicly, uh, you know, take his own life and, and the legacy of that well, and the, what really hit you at a, you know, I mean, it's a, it was a, there's a pretty jarring moment, um, where I, this is another thing that the Rolling Stone Music Now podcast has put up, uh, interviews with Chris Cornell, um, that they've done in the past. And in, in one of the famous cover stories when Bad Motorfinger came out, um, uh, excuse me, no, it was when, uh, what was the Super Black Unknown. Hole Sun, Super Unknown came out. Um, and they were doing, they were literally in the interview room uh, speaking to, to Soundgarden and, like, about their new, new album um, when they got the news that Kurt Cobain had killed himself. Wow. Yeah, that was And that's, like, fucking, fl- it was, yeah, it was kind of a crazy, uh, I mean, it's kind of a crazy mo. and you, I mean, you can, you know, it's it's a pretty famous article now. I'll dig it up and and we can post it on Twitter and stuff like that because it's uh, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I'd like to dig up the the spin article on Lane Staley as well because I remember calling Jeremy um, when that came out and just being like, ah, you know, I mean, it yeah, was that just, was one of the most was, depressing reads was, I think was, I've ever. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, Bob when, when I say article, awesome, I should clarify. It's just a really, it's a well-written article, but it's yeah. also they really capture the the sort of drama and and emotion in that moment for these guys. So yeah, this is this is just you know uh, a, a chronicle of despair, which is you know, I mean this is up there with the Bob Stinson article from Spin back in the in the mid, mid late '80s, where it was just like, oh my god, this is this this Sad. is where this guy lives. It's awful. yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, that was uh, on that lovely note. <laughs> no, well, yeah, but one, I mean, one good I thing that did come out of I think this scene was, um, and we mentioned it earlier, is, is the death of, of the hair band. But unfortunately, we had the rise of, and we can be brief on this, but the rise of Fucking bad alternative metal. rock. And, well, uh, this and see, this is what I grew up with, and I hate it. Like <laughs> well, it's so. It, it wasn't uh, even new. I mean, the new metal thing was a little late, later even than this. But there was a every hair metal, every aspiring hair metal. Guy yeah, to sudden. you know stopped singing like Vince Neil and started singing like Eddie Vedder and it was it's just, that lockjaw thing where you yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, God, it just it's dominated awful. the '90s after that and it was a really fucking brutal man yeah. I, I refer to it as the uh, Quentin Tarantino corollary you know where this guy does it does a great job of this one thing and then but it launched a thousand pale imitators that you know keep thinking that you know uh, every movie has to have a ten minute you know dialogue about eating pussy while you're killing somebody you know it's just a, um, well it's amazing how much the record labels made off of those bands too so I mean you know we had the, the big guys that we talked about but you know where they really made their money was post grunge and, and all these kind of crappy bands that they could just pump out of their machine and uh, you know it's sort of an interesting kind of look at it too where bands like Pearl Jam were like we're done and uh, sort of walked yeah. away receding you know. or, or uh, Canadian Pearl Jam known, known as Nickelback yeah I mean that's yeah, when exactly. that's when I mean Nickelback was even a little further along but I mean that's when you get your Creed. candle boxes and your candle creeds box, and, yeah. uh, I kind of like one candle box song I'm going to admit it on, 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 on air and the brother that's brother really God. embarrassing you shouldn't <laughs> do say not, that Jeremy. do not put it on the, on the top <laughs> yeah, 10 players. under no yeah, circumstances I don't like it that I don't like it that anywhere much. I might hear it anyway 
Speaking right. of, well, that's let's uh, yeah take a quick break. Um, come back spin with our- anything other than candle bucks, and oh, uh, and then we'll come back and do, um, and then we'll do uh, yeah. What are you listening to? And and whatever the other the playlist. <laughs> We're definitely uh, playing candle bucks at the end of this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Brother, 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 and uh, we've been talking about grunge, um, and now we're uh, we're getting into um, the final segments that we do on every podcast. What are you listening to? And uh, we're going to add a few songs to the um, top or the one thousand top ten songs of all time. So, Wyndham, what have you been listening to this week? I have been listening to. I have been watching a, or at least the first couple of segments of a, of a seven-part documentary called "The Keepers" about a uh, nun who was murdered in Baltimore in the late '60s and the fallout. Um, it was a, a cold case for a very long time, and I haven't gotten to the end, so I'm not sure if it's still a cold case. But it's compelling and repulsive, and you know. Um, really dark and frightening and uh like i said i'm still all of those so adjectives could apply to grunge too, i know so. that's why i brought it up <laughs> so it, it, um, it, it has that it's a, it's the mood i'm in right now uh well i've been watching yeah, i'll stick we'll stick with tv um for a second but i just watched uh the second season of master of none which has obviously caught a ton of buzz um aziz ansari's uh sort of comedy drama um i i have to say you know i'm a huge fan of his particularly when he's not doing sort of very sort of straightforward comedy when he's when he's he's actually he's an incredibly smart guy clearly um and uh and i'm sort of i i value his his social commentary as much if not more than the sort of stand-up type of comedy stuff um and you know so in spite of eric wareheim um who i find you know a little bit uh Difficult to Irksome. tolerate sometimes, yeah. Um, but my, uh, but my, you know, good good friend Ali Barton um, was in this season uh, and did an awesome job. So cool. um, no, it's it's definitely worth recommending, and it's cool because it's it's also got this sort of interactive component where you know every restaurant they go to, every place, you know, it really is like I mean it's all here, um, and so it's sort of fun to to um, you know it's it, it's very much set in a real New York and a modern New York, so it's kind of fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching that. I like the first season quite a bit. And uh, while you guys rot your uh, brains with the boob tube, I'm uh, going to jump into a book that I've been reading. So uh, 
about halfway Bunch through with nerds. <laughs> about halfway through with uh, shattered the inside uh, Hillary Clinton's doom campaign by Amy uh, Parnes and Jonathan Allen and. You know, as perplexed as we all are as to uh, how Hillary uh, lost this last election and then some of us saddened, it's just a really interesting story and, and look at kind of like mismanagement and, uh, you know, kind of egos. And, and I just, I kind of eat that shit up. So it, I think it's a really good, fast read. And if you like, even if you're not into politics, it's, it's just a really good character yeah. study. We're watching television. And, um, you're reading an awesome soap opera. And there we go. Yeah. All right, so should we uh, flip some? Yeah, songs go for on the it. Playlist? You want to throw one on there? Yeah, I mean, I was I was hoping to hear what you guys had, but I think I'm going to stick with the genre of Seattle grunge and um, and go with one of my favorite uh, favorite Alice in Chains songs. Actually, I, I love the song Wood, and I'm going to throw Wood on there. Nice, cool. Chris, I'll stick with the genre too, then, and uh, throw on "Touch Me, I'm Sick" ah, by Mudhoney, one of my all-time nice. favorite songs. I think we'll take that <laughs> I one. So I left I left it for you. Wow, that was uh, that was um, actually what I had queued up. So um, I will uh, I will depart uh, that particular area of the country and go to a sunnier climb. And um, let's see, what can I throw on there? Um, I'm gonna go with an old. Um, Let's see, what do I want to go with? I'm going to, you know, I haven't thrown on an, I don't think I've thrown on an X song yet, so I'm going to throw nice. on the uh, the Have Nots off of... Um, uh, Under the Big Black Sun? Yeah, Under the Big Black Sun. Man, I really stumped you, didn't I? Well, no, I just had it lined <laughs> up. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've always wanted, I was always going to put that song on anyway, and I was trying to reach back into my uh, my Slash... Uh, SST collection uh, because that's where that's part of where we spent some time today. So I'm going to go yep. with um, with X. I have not. Cool. All right. All right, guys. Well, this was fun. I'm glad we got to talk about grunge. I feel like I learned a little bit. Um, and yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep listening to a shit ton of Chris Cornell stuff. That guy's man. He had just an incredible range. Yeah. Um, okay. So one of the best pure singers I think there ever was. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, we'll catch up next week. And uh, all right, thanks so much. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Take care. That's it for this episode of Brother 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 Podcast. Many thanks to Simon Doom for our intro music, Hair of the God, and to our heroic producer Damian Kendall. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Tweet our mistakes and your recommendations, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, on behalf of Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you for listening.